If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the 19th century, one businesswoman shocked, appalled and fascinated New York society more than any other. Madame Ristel was a celebrity and self-made millionaire known for her diamonds and her love of oyster breakfasts. But how exactly did she make this fortune? By selling birth control pills and offering abortions from her Fifth Avenue brownstone boarding house. Historical writer Jennifer Wright is the author of a new biography of Ristel, And as she told me, it's a story that reveals a lot about the complex and divided attitudes towards abortion, motherhood and the roles of women in American society at the time. So your book is a biography of a 19th century abortionist who was known as Madame Rastel, who operated in New York. And I think it's fair to say that she led a pretty dramatic, tumultuous life. Before we go any further, can you introduce us to your subject a bit? Absolutely. So, Madame Rastel was not born Madame Rastel. She was born Anne Trow in Painswick, England, and she was born to a fairly poor family. She started out her life as a maid of all work. Then she got married to a tailor at the age of 16, and she had one daughter, and she decided, as many people have, that she was going to move to America because you could become rich in America. So, she moves to the Lower East Side of New York, at which point her husband promptly dies. Now, as a single mother to a very young child, this is a terrible position to be in in 1830s New York, because having a young child meant that you probably couldn't go to work in one of the factories without leaving your child alone. And uh, a lot of women were finding that to be a terrible problem during this period. And it's one of the reasons why you hear reports about things like laudanum being the poor child's nurse, because women would drag their children with laudanum so they could leave them alone and go off to work. These incredibly 
incredibly long 16-hour days. And uh, Madame Rostel tried to make a living at taking in other people's laundry. She tried to work as a seamstress for a while, but she wasn't making very much money at it. She lived on the same street as a pill compounder. And at the time, there wasn't really any oversight over what was going into pills. So you could take pretty much any pills you want, and you could take any herbs you wanted, smash them together into a pill, and say, okay, this is going to help your insomnia, or this is going to cure your headaches. So Madame Ristel starts learning from this pill compounder, and she starts making birth control pills. And she's using ingredients like turpentine and tansy for these pills that are effective but unbelievably dangerous. So these are things that will cause you to abort. They also might cause you to die. Madame Rostel, however, must have been very good at combining ingredients because she starts building up a huge clientele and a huge repeat clientele. So Madame Rostel starts selling these pills and she also learns how to perform surgical abortions using a piece of whalebone. And again, must have had a very steady hand. There's no record of Madame Ristel losing a patient from an abortion, which is, uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things about her. But uh, obviously, she starts getting a huge number of people who do not want to be pregnant. And around this time, she also meets her second husband, Charles Lohman, who worked as a printer for a newspaper. And he's very familiar with the kind of advertising that's going on in this period. So they make up this very glamorous persona for her that she is no longer Anne Trow. She is now Madame Rostel. Her grandmother was a midwife. She's from France. And this was also at a time when Paris was really on the forefront of medical innovation. So not only does she seem like a very sexually enlightened French person, people also think, oh, well, if she's from Paris, she probably knows a lot of medical techniques that we don't know. So this is an incredibly effective persona that I think is, is probably undercut somewhat by the fact that she still had a very British accent. So that may that may have been a persona that people were able to see through, but it's a very effective persona for her advertisements. That was a really comprehensive view, I think, of how she established her career. But can you give us a bit of background knowledge here? So what was the legal status of abortion and also birth control in 19th century New York? Well, at the time Madame Ristel was doing abortions in New York in the early 1830s, abortioning before the quickening would have been a misdemeanor. Uh, the quickening is when you start to feel the fetus move inside you. And that's usually pretty late. That's around four or five months into the pregnancy. So you'd be looking at something like 24 weeks. And uh, the quickening would also be determined by the woman. So abortions were a misdemeanor if you did it before the quickening. They were a felony after the quickening, and that had more to do with the woman's health, that these would be very dangerous procedures after five months into pregnancy. More, It was more about that than it was about the belief that a fetus has personhood from the time of conception. So what were some of the central arguments of opponents of abortion in the 19th century? Were they the same as today? Uh, well, the initial opposition to Madame Ristel is Madame Ristel starts running these editorials in newspapers, in her advertisements, about how birth control is 
a social good averting the worst of nature's fury that is akin to a lightning rod, that we've all seen what happens when uh, families have more children than they can take care of. We've seen how those families suffer. We've seen how women suffer if they are having 10 children. We've seen women who die in childbirth because they were in really poor health and they should not have been trying to have another child. So, Madame Rostel is making these fairly modern arguments about how it is responsible to be on birth control. It may be responsible to have an abortion. And her opponent's initial response was, well, this would undercut the root of the social order, because if you're a man, and let's say you go on a trip to Europe for six months, right now, if you come back and your wife is pregnant, you know that she cheated on you. Or if, you know, you are a man hoping to marry a virgin, and uh, she's gotten pregnant, oh, you, you know that she is no longer a virgin. But now you won't know. So, you could go away, think you're coming back to a wife who is been perfectly faithful, when in actuality, uh, she has been having sex with everybody in the entire town, and there's going to be no physical evidence of it. And that is horrifying to a lot of men. So that's one of the initial arguments against Madame Ristel. And then you get to Horatio Storer, who is kind of the father of the anti-abortion movement in the 1850s, who uh, starts talking about how he believes that life begins at conception and uh, that women should not be entrusted with the well-being of the potential male, that he makes this argument that I think is devilishly brilliant, that as soon as you are pregnant, you are insane, that there are so many hormones that you are no longer capable of rational judgment about whether or not you wish to have a child or whether you wish to have an abortion. And that is why this decision really has to fall to male doctors and not to women. So, that's where the argument about how this is no longer a woman's decision begins. But Horatio Storer makes this argument, and Horatio Storer also really shifts the discussion about the kind of women who are getting abortions. That at the beginning of the century, there's this notion that if a woman needs an abortion, she's been seduced. Um, the seducer should feel bad about himself. The woman is stupid, but okay, we all understand how this happens. But by the end of the century, as the suffragette movement is blossoming, and as women are having more social lives in cities, women have moved in huge numbers from rural areas into cities, and uh, they're doing the things that you do in cities. They're going out to parties, they're having friends, they're reading newspapers, they're going to libraries, they're going to lectures, they're having these fuller lives. There is this huge feel that women are abandoning their appointed roles as mothers, uh, that they are biblically ordained to become mothers. And if women are not doing that, then these are bad women. And the discussion starts being that women are having abortions because they are frivolous socialites and they are worried that they're not going to fit into their pretty clothes anymore if they have a baby. That is cast as very, very negative at the time. 
And part of that, I'm sorry, I know there is there there are so many factors at play in how abortion went from being semi-legal to being literally unspeakable after the Comstock laws. But another factor in that, and it's a factor that Storer is really clear about, is you've seen a huge influx of Irish immigrants during this period. And there is a great worry that they are going to outbreed white Protestants in America. So there is this fear that white Protestant people are going to be replaced. And that fear only escalates after the end of the Civil War in the 1860s, where people are now concerned that there is going to be a, it's called a browning of America. And uh, you are suddenly going to have a country that is not mostly uh, white Protestant Christians. And uh, Story talks about how upon, uh, it's implied, white women's loins depends the destiny of the nation about whether or not it is a nation that will be filled with our children or the children of aliens. So... uh, Storer has a very clear motive for why he wants to ban abortion. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't work. When you take away professionals who perform abortions, you just get more women doing do-it-yourself abortions. There was an 1898 estimate by the Michigan Board of Health that found that despite all these efforts, one-third of pregnancies in the state were still terminated via abortion. It just means that women are often resorting to more dangerous methods than if they were going to somebody who was trained in the way that... Madame Russell was at least effectively self-taught. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's a lot to unpack there. You mentioned the Comstock laws. Could you tell us a bit about them and how that they impacted on abortion in the 19th century? 
1873, the Comstock laws passed, and they forbade the mailing of any obscene information, which meant that not only could you not send anything that could perform an abortion through the mail or distribute anything that could create an abortion, you could no longer distribute information about birth control or information about how to limit your family. And you certainly could not provide any information about how to perform an abortion or where somebody might go to get an abortion. And it was actually Anthony Comstock himself who trapped Madame Restelle at the end of his life. He went to see her in disguise, and uh, Madame Restelle surprisingly did not recognize him. Uh, She later said that she thought he was taller. And uh, he told her that he had a lady friend who was pregnant. She couldn't be pregnant. And Madame Roussel gave him two pills and said, okay, come back. These should work by Thursday. If they don't, come back with your lady friend and we will take it from there. And Anthony Comstock did come back. He came back with the police. Madame Rostel handled it with her typical aplomb. She told them that she wasn't going to jail until she ate an oyster lunch. Then uh, she demanded to go to jail in her own beautiful carriage. So Madame Rostel was initially pretty calm about that. And she was initially pretty calm when she was in jail. She told reporters that she assumed that he must be getting paid by someone, that this must be someone who had a financial motivation. And she is wrong about that. There, There is something of a financial motivation to Anthony Comstock going after Ristel because he needs to get donations and make money for the Society of the Suppression of Vice that he runs. And getting headlines like going after Madame Ristel is definitely a way to do that. But Anthony Comstock was a true believer. Uh, he really did want a world where women were at home having children as he felt the Bible told them to. So Madame Ristel is pretty calm about this. She's been in prison before. She essentially took over the prison. The last time she was in prison, she just used the warden's office and made the warden's wife make all her meals. She appointed three other prisoners as her servants who were I guess, very receptive to that and like brought her a feather bed and her books and peaches that she was bribing the ferryman to have brought in. So Madame Ristel's pretty cool until she becomes uncharacteristically hysterical. Shortly after a body is found in Madame Ristel's bathtub with its throat slit, but there were a lot of questions at the time about whether or not this was actually Madame Ristel's body. Her estranged son-in-law said that there was a plan to get Madame Ristel out of the country. By this point, uh, her husband had died. She had trained her granddaughter as sort of her apprentice. So we don't know much about whether her granddaughter kept the family business going. But it seems likely that if she did, she would have had to do it in a much more discreet way than her grandmother did. She wouldn't have been running editorials about how great birth control is in the newspaper at this point. And there are reports later that Madame Ristel was seen alive and well in Paris. And we also know that when people looked in her mansion afterwards, all of her diamonds and all of her most fabulous dresses were missing. So uh, if 
you choose to believe it. And we also know that her grandson and her granddaughter, who she was very close to, uh, showed up in bright, happy colors at the reading of the will, and then went on a lovely yearly trip to Paris for the next 10 years. So if you choose to believe it, there is reading that story where Madame Restelle just realized that uh, America was not a good place for her to be anymore, and she was getting out. She was finally going to make this Madame Restelle persona real, and she was going to live happily in Paris. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, Jennifer. I almost don't know <laughs> so where to much, begin. I'm sorry. Uh, but one thing I did want to ask you about was, as you say, the danger involved in these procedures. Any medical procedure in the 19th century was dangerous to begin with, and obviously this even more so. Can you tell us about those dangers and whether there were any cases that went wrong? There were cases that went wrong. There were very luckily not reported cases of Madame Restelle's patient suffering. If, for instance, you move that piece of whalebone in the wrong direction, you could puncture the bowels. A woman could easily become septic. There were also these, I think, fairly callous reports in the newspaper where people talk about how a woman died because she took too much turpentine and, oh, well, she should have gone to Madame Restelle. That's too bad. So uh, there was kind of this understanding that if you did anything even slightly wrong during an abortion, you would die. But there were also doctors saying, like, if this is done by a trained professional, this is probably safer than childbirth, even at the time. So um, now part of the reason that childbirth was very unsafe at that time was because uh, doctors were not washing their hands. And we see that with Ignat Semmelweis trying to tell doctors they have to wash their hands because he worked at a hospital where uh, there was a doctor's clinic and a midwife's clinic. And pregnant women who were delivered by midwives had pretty good outcomes. I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I think it was 2% ended up dying in childbirth. So people were doing pretty well. And it was much, much, much higher with the doctors. And the reason for that is because doctors were operating on cadavers without ever washing their hands. And uh, Semmelweis tried to convince people to do this. And when he did it, the birth rates in the doctor's clinic dropped down to the same rates in the midwife's clinic. But then uh, doctors rejected this and said that doctors are gentlemen and gentlemen's hands are clean. And so it took, unfortunately, far too long for his findings to be accepted. But another reason that childbirth is so dangerous during this period is that you suddenly had a huge number of men who were training to become physicians. Wealthy men start going abroad to Europe and they start walking hospitals in places like Paris. They start listening to lecturers in foreign countries that are on the forefront of medical innovation. And then they come back much better trained. And Americans start saying, well, we can do that. But 
But they do that by taking over these lecture halls, sending out advertisements, telling men in towns like, train as a physician, you can be rich, you'll have a great life. And you would train for six months. Uh, You would certainly never see a pregnant woman. And uh, a lot of people wouldn't even show up for all of these classes. They'd just show up at the end, they'd be asked some fairly straightforward questions, and then they'd get their diploma. So suddenly you have this massive influx of men who are, in their own mind, considering themselves physicians, and they have the certificate to prove it, and they do not have good skills when it comes to the female anatomy. And this was also a time when male doctors were encouraged to avert their eyes when they were examining female patients, because it would interfere with the woman's modesty. So midwives were so much better at delivering children during this period. They were also the only people who were pretty good at performing abortions because they had at least the working knowledge of a female anatomy that comes from being a woman yourself. And uh, this was infuriating to doctors because they're watching women like Madame Ristel and her contemporaries get incredibly rich. Like Madame Ristel is riding through town in the most beautiful carriage you have ever seen. She's dripping in diamonds. She has a mansion next to Central Park. Meanwhile, there are a lot of young men who are saying, well, I was told that I was going to train as a doctor and I paid my fee and now I have no patience because there are too many doctors. So uh, how do I get new patients? And one way the American Medical Association figured out how to do that was by start saying, and abortion is very bad now. It's very, very bad. And anybody who is doing this is a terrible person. You should be going to a male doctor. So by edging women out of that business, they suddenly have a whole new group of pregnant women who need to go see men. And I'm guessing that one of the challenges in kind of uncovering the story and trying to tell it is these incredibly divided opinions. So Madame Ristel is obviously a great self-promoter on the one hand, but then on the other, she's immensely demonised in the press. How do you kind of get beyond that and get to the the real story, especially when so much of this was, was hidden? For example, some women may have suffered from taking Madame Ristel's medicines or from perhaps her surgeries. Is there a chance that we might just not know about that? Because, of course, it was wouldn't have been reported. Yes, there are women who that that absolutely might have happened. It wouldn't have been reported. They probably would have kept it very quiet. But we also do know that she has a lot of patients who are coming back to her 10 times. So uh, we at least know that she has a very dedicated repeat clientele. So that seems to indicate that but she was she was pretty good at what she did. But there are also people who were very intent on demonizing her in the press. I think if Madame Restell had killed people regularly, there are instances where deaths are wrongly attributed to her, where, for instance, one of her patients died of tuberculosis. Now, she all she knew is she had an abortion, and then a few years later, she got really sick. And uh, she thought, like, well, maybe it was the abortion. I, I know that abortions are something you're not supposed to do. So she confesses to her husband on her deathbed, I had an abortion. I think it's what made me sick. That is probably not what actually caused her death. There is another patient of Madame Restel's who 
found herself very sick afterwards and went to her family doctor and said, I'm very sick. I don't know what's wrong. And the doctor said he wouldn't do anything to help her unless she shared that she had an abortion. And then the doctor reported Madame Restelle for performing an abortion. But that woman actually had syphilis. So again, the cases we've had, and there were people who certainly wanted to prove that things were going badly as a result of Madame Restelle's abortions. The people that were on trial about it were people who seemed to be suffering from other ailments. It seems like generally if something went wrong with an abortion, it went wrong pretty fast. We have later cases like Rosenzweig. Rosenzweig was a very poorly trained abortionist who killed a woman, then stuffed her in a trunk and tried to ship her out of state. It did not work. And it was obviously a horrifying, horrifying case. But that happened immediately. The trials with Madame Restell are women who had an abortion, then got independently sick maybe a year or two later, and didn't have the medical knowledge to make the connection that uh, their illness might be happening independently of their abortion. But look, I think if she'd killed anybody, we'd know about it because there were people incredibly invested in trying to prove that Madame Restelle had killed people. And uh, they're certainly able to prove that other abortionists from this period did kill people or that women had died when they attempted to induce their own abortions. Another side of Restelle's business was finding adoptive parents for babies. Is that correct? Principally, you would go to Madame Restelle if you were looking for birth control or an abortion. Uh, That's what she was known for. There are children that we know she adopted out. But I think when we think about adoption now, we think of it in terms of like, oh, this lovely wealthy couple is going to give a beautiful life to this baby. Now, there was a huge surplus of children during this period. So what adoption might have meant is Madame Restelle shuffled this child off to a baby farmer and it died two months later because there was no breast milk to feed it and it was being fed smashed up bread and milk out of entirely unsanitary cups. One of the things that I found really interesting that I hadn't known about this period is that there weren't yet foundling homes in New York. And I thought, well, that's wrong because I saw the musical Hamilton and I know that Eliza Hamilton started an orphanage. Orphanages are different than foundling homes. Orphanages are for children who had two living parents, and then those parents died, and they had no place to go. Foundlings are the offspring of unmarried women, and they are unwanted children. And those children were considered to have bad blood. And uh, they, if anybody took them in, then they would grow up just like their whorish mothers or their drunken fathers. So people didn't want to accept those children. And uh, there was also such a huge problem with the surplus of children in New York during this period that in the 1850s, uh, they started having orphan trains, where the idea was that you would just round up these street urchins and you would send them off to the Midwest. They didn't really understand that a 10-year-old who has grown up in New York, A, is not going to be much use on the farm, and B, is going to come off that train already smoking and drinking. Childhood happened very, very briefly for children who had grown up in the streets of New York. There was such a surplus of children that it is not the way we think of adoption today. So to take us back to Madame Restelle, 
I'm so intrigued by her as a person. How easy is it to get at what she was actually like behind all the the persona that she created and also the press? And do we get a sense that she was really motivated by a belief that women should be entitled to birth control or abortions? Or was she motivated by the golden carriage and the diamonds? Oh, she was definitely motivated by the golden carriage and the diamonds. Um, I think she was always very clear that she was here in America to make money. She was going to do it. She loved making money. She loved flaunting her wealth at every opportunity. She loved having very elaborate parties. And that's fine. But I think we also see some really compassionate aspects to Madame Ristel. She worked on a sliding scale, uh, so she would charge people less if uh, she knew that they were servants. I think that might be because Madame Ristel began her own life as a servant at a time when women who were in service were very susceptible to sexual harassment. And we also know that when she was with her patients, she was treating them about as well as she could. That she would sleep in the bed with them to make sure that nothing went wrong, that they weren't running a fever after they had an abortion. She would bring them food. She would be very motherly towards them. There's a line from her saying that by the time this is done, you will call me mother. But a lot of abortionists did not care for their patients in the same way. They weren't providing them with this kind of round-the-clock service to make sure that they recovered from the abortion and they were in good shape. And that had some very, very bad outcomes. So we know that that happened with some of Madame Ristel's competitors. But... Look, I, I think it can be both. I think Madame Ristel was very motivated financially. And I think she also realized that there is a direct connection between financial well-being and being able to determine how many children you have. That if you are having more children than you can pay for, the children are going to suffer as a result of that, and the parents are probably going to suffer as a result of that. Well, I do always think it's notable that Madame Ristel only has one child, which would have been a bit of a rarity at the time. You've spoken about how Madame Ristel was a great self-publicist and how she was referred to so frequently in the press. Is that then to tell us that abortion really was an open secret in society at this time? There are estimates that one in five pregnancies were terminated in abortion. Horatio Storr put it a little bit higher. He said in New York it was closer to one in four. So abortion has always been very, very common. The question is whether or not abortion is going to be performed by reputable professionals or if abortion is going to be performed under much more dangerous circumstances. And... One of the things that also fascinated me reading articles about her is uh, there are all these reports, as we've discussed, about her mansion and her carriages. And I thought those reports would all say, and they're really tacky. This is really gross. This is so nouveau riche. This is disgusting. And they're not. They're all about how, like, well, abortion is wrong, but this is the best house we've ever seen in our lives. Wow, look at her dress. This woman is so beautiful. She's the most beautiful woman we've ever seen. And one of the things that makes me very sad is that we can't find 
find an attractive portrait of Madame Restelle, that even her enemies, um, there's this kind of gross piece in the newspaper by um, Major Mordecai Noah talking about how all of what he wants is to see Madame Restelle's magnificent breasts inside a prison uniform. And unfortunately, the only pictures of her I can find are her sprouting demon wings were like sitting in prison looking sad. It must be out there somewhere. It is It is a source of sadness to me that I could not find it. And I guess what the, this book reveals is that we think of abortion today as a very emotive and a very divisive subject, especially in America. But your book reveals that that's nothing new, that, that that's long been the case. It, well, there has never been a period in history where people weren't having abortions. I think today in America, there is this very false notion that in the past, the natural order of things is that people would just be happy to have as many children as they could. And that is not the natural order of things. That is not something people have ever generally wanted. That was Jennifer Wright. Her book on this subject is Madame Ristel, The Life, Death and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless and Infamous Abortionist. That's on sale now, published by Hachette. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. <laughs>